0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 280 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Stick to Your Gut, an interview with Emily Hogan. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. Every single person dealing with Lyme disease is going to benefit from this podcast episode. Emily Hogan was a Western nurse who was misdiagnosed with a wide variety of conditions for many of her peers. Her health continued to decline until she finally saw a naturopathic doctor who tested her for Lyme disease through Igenix. She tested positive, utilized Eastern medicine in combination with her Western training, and was able to overcome and heal from chronic Lyme disease. So without further ado, Emily Hogan in, stick to your gut. Hey, Emily Hogan, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: We are
2: excited to have you, Emily. It's been a long time coming, and we have so much to talk about with you, and it's always exciting for us to speak with folks who have a, uh, a Western medical background and who have had to turn east in order to be able to get themselves healed, and you know that's going to be, I think, one of the things our folks are going to really enjoy about this podcast, and we're really looking forward to flushing that out with you. So let's talk about your background, Emily. Uh, you are a nurse, and um, talk to us about your nursing background first.
1: Okay. Yeah, so I um, pretty much always knew I wanted to become a nurse. Uh, ever since high school, I did an internship in the emergency room, and it pretty much solidified it from there. But I, um, I love kids, so I really wanted to do a pediatric ICU job from the very beginning. So after high school, I um, graduated and went to University of Portland where I got my bachelor's of science in nursing. And I um, graduated and immediately went into the pediatric floor nursing. And then from there, went on into the pediatric ICU, which was my dream. Um, And worked in the pediatric ICU for about um, three years um, up until now and everything. But yeah, that was pretty much my dream all along.
2: So you shared with us that you were dreaming about nursing from the very beginning. But talk to us about the very beginning. Where did you grow up and what was it like growing up where you grew up?
1: Yeah, I grew up in uh, Reno, Nevada, and I grew up, I had a really big family in Nevada. I had um, 17 of us cousins and aunts and uncles and everyone kind of running around. Um, But we kind of grew up in a big family where we were really into the outdoors, really into kind of everything. And I don't know what strikes me about science, but from the very beginning, I loved science classes and everything. And I loved kind of the journey of being there for people in their hardest times. And so both together, it was kind of how I chose nursing from the beginning. But yeah.
2: So you had this outdoorsy uh, childhood. You, uh, You had this aptitude for science. You wanted to apply that to the healing arts. And off you went into nursing school and ultimately to nursing, right?
1: yes exactly
2: (laughs) well talk to us about um about what type of safety precautions you took when you were an outdoorsy gal right you and your 17 cousins are running around and you're doing all kinds of things outdoors and probably playing different types of games and hiding in the woods and the weeds and in the (laughs) uh in the uh in the bushes um were you given any safety precautions to make sure that you didn't get either bitten or sick from anything out in the outdoors
1: You know, we, um, we had safety precautions for just about everything else. We brought whistles with us in case there were bears and all the things, but ticks were never anything that we even worried about. We, um, we had a family that we basically grew up with as um, uh, second cousins and at their place, at their cabin, there were ticks everywhere. And me and my cousins would get ticks and we would use fire and we would get them out and there was never any worry about it. It just seems like you got rid of them. That was it and move on. But, um, but wait a minute. We, we from, have to pause that for
2: a second. You said you used fire to get rid of them. What do you mean use used fire? We to did them?
1: like, like lighters. And the thing back then was you used lighters and you would draw them out and then you would remove them. Uh, which now is not the right thing to do at all but yeah that's how we grew up and you know everything else was a huge fear in the wilderness but ticks were never what we were nervous about
2: now, Emily, you said you were a science geek when you were a kid um you had this passion and this aptitude for science I mean did uh did the fact that you had these 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 ticks biting you and uh you know and that was a part of that experience did you do any research on them did you you know did you learn anything about them
1: you know, I didn't, I, for some reason it just, it didn't strike me. No one talks about ticks, no one did anything. So it just seemed like it was this harmless little weird bug that you got rid of and that was it, you know? <laughs> so unfortunately I didn't.
2: So how many times during your childhood do you recall getting bitten when you were at that, uh, the tick cabin?
1: I personally never had any that we found. My cousins, however, I mean, there were countless. And, um, it was kind of—we all wore hats. We all knew about it, but you know, like I—I I have some pretty big curly hair, so you know, it was kind of like, who knows? I'll put this hat on, but the rest of me is still all out there. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> and I always think it's funny when people wear hats. It's not like ticks are jumping out of trees, right? So I know. And that's, what, that's
1: what we thought, though. Yeah. They, that was literally as a kid. That's what I thought. I was like, all right, they're jumping out of the trees. If I put this hat on, we're good. <laughs>
2: So now the, so now the, the kid with a, you know, with an aptitude for science and a passion for uh, the healing arts goes to nursing school. So what'd you learn about ticks and uh, tick vectors when you were in nursing school?
1: Absolutely nothing. It didn't even, I mean, once come up in school, like it was literally not even kind of talked about.
2: So after you went to school, you did uh, various internships, and you did uh, you did your um, you know your preliminary work before you became a licensed nurse. Uh, were you introduced to ticks or vectors, or you know either mosquitoes or ticks or any of these kinds of bugs that could uh, spit uh, diseases into people and make them sick? Did you learn anything about uh, those things when you were studying um, you know and doing these internships before you became a nurse?
1: No, no, we didn't learn anything. I, um, so I had gone abroad, uh, during my nursing program and I was living in Salzburg, Austria at the time. And I had gone camping and hiking and done all the things over in Europe as well. And while I was over there, I had developed this weird rash that they just couldn't figure out what was going on. And I, they, they, thought it was maybe like a ringworm rash. And so I was putting medication on it and kind of got a fever and all the things, but at the time still, and this is my third year into nursing school, hadn't learned anything. And so even at this point, I hadn't heard anything about Lyme disease.
2: All right. So let's pause there for a second. So you, uh, you're, you're, you're bouncing around um, in uh, Europe on your internship, right? You're going camping, you're doing all kinds of things and um something happens and you find a rash on your body now when you found the rash on your body did that cause you to seek medical attention or did you just treat it yourself
1: um I unfortunately have been which is kind of interesting with everything have been very prone to illness as a kid throughout my whole life and so at the time it was just kind of another thing it was like I was in Austria and I had a director there who I went to and was saying I was sick. I had this weird rash. Could I please see a medical doctor? And so they did take me to a doctor at the time. Um, but it just, to me, seemed like another thing at the time.
2: Okay. So now the medical doctor gave you some cream to treat this rash that you have, right? Um, yes. Do you know what kind of cream the doctor gave you? Was it a steroidal cream that was treating the treating the rash? and Uh, Now that you know what you know, do you think perhaps the steroidal cream, I can't say that word, uh, suppressed your immune system and actually caused you to get sicker?
1: Um, It was a steroidal cream. Um, At the time, I, I don't know if I could say that that's what was making me sicker, but I definitely don't think it helped because I had used it for uh, like almost three weeks and nothing had changed. So obviously it was not the correct uh, thing to do, but yes, it was a steroid cream. I think it probably did more harm than good, but I don't think it was my tipping point.
2: (laughs) So, well, again, we'll, we'll talk about tipping points uh, as we get there. So you, you now have this three week course of steroids you're using. You're now going about your life. uh, And um, how did your symptoms begin to develop?
1: Yeah. So I had pretty much flu-like symptoms throughout and I just, to me, I thought it was just a regular thing. And so I kind of got through it and the rash eventually went away after about five weeks and all my flu-like symptoms pretty much went away and suppressed. And I mean, to be fair, to give the background, I was studying abroad as a young kid, wanting to have fun and live my life. And so... I think I also somewhat suppressed it in my mind, you know, whether it was actually the symptoms were actually gone or not. And so I actually was able to pretty much kind of get rid of most of the symptoms at that point.
2: Yeah, so your body was able to deal with this acute illness and, you know, you wanted to make sure that you enjoyed your time away. It was the time of your life, right? Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, did this acute illness, um, ultimately stay as an acute illness that your body managed or did your symptoms continue to develop and become something more?
1: So ultimately, um, so it was pretty good for a while. I ended up making it through the year with just some minor things here and there. And then I came back to America and about six months later, is when it ended up becoming crazy and it, it became not um, suppressed anymore at all.
2: <laughs> okay, so talk about um, how long after, you said it was six months after you had gotten back that you got sick?
1: Yeah, around there, between like six months to, yeah, almost a year.
2: What was going on in your life at that time? Were there any, um, any high stress events? Did you know, were, were, were you having any circles at school? Were there any personal problems? What was going on that may have been immunosuppressive or immune disrupting at that time?
1: Yeah, I was living a pretty normal life. I mean, nursing school in general was pretty hard and I was also working a full-time job on the side of it. And so I was definitely not taking care of my body in the sense of sleeping and eating and doing all of the right things. Um, However, I think that I had just gotten maybe some virus um, or something that had just kickstarted it because I got extremely violently ill and had been throwing up for almost three days straight of just pretty much straight bile and had a really high fever and was probably one of the sickest times I've ever been. Um, so I think that was the moment where it disrupted my immune system and it all came out.
2: Now, do you think it's possible that perhaps you were bitten by a tick again and that you were just now reacting to a second tick bite or, or a reinfection? Or do you think it was something different?
1: It's possible. I personally think that I got bit when I was in Europe at the time. And then I think that this virus just hit me so hard that that was almost just the trigger my body was at its lowest and it all kind of built up from there.
2: So how did how did your symptoms develop from the time that you had this, you know, three-day throwing up everything, include all, <laughs> left only with bile, bile. Uh, how, how did your um, uh, symptoms develop from there?
1: Yeah, so I ended up going into the ER, um, and when I went into the ER, they thought I had appendicitis, so they did all the scans and everything, and everything turned up normal from there. But I still I was still throwing up like crazy. I mean, it was constant all day, every day, I wasn't getting any fluids in. And my stomach had blown up to the point where it looks like I was eight months pregnant. And it was so crazy that they discharged me and said that they thought I had the flu. But they also said, I think you need to follow up tomorrow if things aren't getting better with a um outside like urgent care basically to see what else is going on
2: and how'd that go for you
1: it was horrible (laughs) so I went to this urgent care the next day and I was still throwing up my stomach was still so blown up it looked like I was eight months pregnant and I went in and they um looked at all my lab work that they had done in the ER they looked at my scans and everything had come back normal so they decided to do a pelvic exam. And when they did the pelvic exam, it, I basically flew off the table. It hurt so bad. And, um, at that point they had basically said, Oh, we figured it out. You have pelvic inflammatory disease and pelvic inflammatory disease is an infection. Um, basically a lot of times it stems from an STD that hasn't been treated and the bacteria has expanded it basically. And cause this huge inflammatory response and can be really dangerous and can cause infertility and all these other things. And, um, at the time I had told them this, this had been actually over the next week since I'd been to the ER. And so at the time they said, well, you must have been sexually active in the last like two weeks. And, I had said, no, I barely can get out of bed. I am so sick. There's no way that this has happened. This would be really crazy if this is what it is, because there's no way. And they pretty much wrote me off and said, you know, all the signs and symptoms are here. I feel like you are embarrassed to talk about this. However, unfortunately, this is what it is. And it's a pretty massive course of antibiotics that we're going to need to send you home on. We will do your swabs and we'll, it will show us if you come back with an STD or not. However, unfortunately, I know that this is a hard thing to talk about, but we need you to be honest. And this is what it is and do the treatment.
2: All right. So now let's talk about the young nurse uh, who's now being treated in the Western medical system. She goes to the ER and they tell her there's nothing wrong with her they tell her to follow up with another doctor you go go to the next uh you know medical facility and you're now called a liar so how does that make you feel as a student of the system that you were so invested in uh during the entirety of your life
1: it was horrible and it was absolutely horrible i you know being on the other side of it i don't feel like i have seen anyone treat a patient like this however now that I've been the patient there's you know I there's no way that there's not people being treated this way you know and so for me it was a huge wake-up call and a huge demeaning moment in my life where I felt like I don't know it just kind of takes away everything from you you know I, I went home I was feeling so sick I couldn't even think and then for them to put this on me I was like yeah okay i some i'm bad you know something's bad and i'm just gonna do what they say get through it and i'm embarrassed and let's get through it but it was horrible
2: so you you have this this physically traumatic event a physical traumatic event you now are suffering from from emotional trauma because of the way you're being treated by the doctors and the nurses and the staffing uh, and the staff at the at uh, at the at the medical facility. And I'd have to think that, you know, for somebody who is so invested in the medical system, you know, somebody who wanted to be a nurse her entire life, who's now studying nursing, who wants to become a nurse, that the this medical trauma had to be a little bit more severe, because in addition to you just being called a liar, everything that you believed in and everything you were working toward had to sort of begin to crumble for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was definitely the beginning of the crumbling moment. And as crazy as it sounds, that wasn't even the worst of the crumbling moment with the Western medicine. That was truly only the beginning of it, but right. yeah.
2: So obviously you, we need you to share with us. So let's go through the chronology. What, um, In total, by the way, before you got your diagnosis, how many different doctors and medical facilities did you go to where you did not receive a Lyme disease diagnosis?
1: Yeah, I truly lost count of the doctors I saw. Um, I saw multiple doctors in Portland when I, because that's where I went to college, and then I moved back to Nevada after I had graduated nursing school to work as a nurse. And so I began seeing doctors in Nevada, in Reno. And I mean, I would say at least 15 doctors of them would be relevant um, to the case, but I had been sent to Stanford. I was sent to all sorts of different doctors before anything was found.
2: All right. So outline for us the different doctors that you went to see and what diagnostic testing did you do and what diagnoses did you receive?
1: Yeah, I think that for me, it's probably a little bit different than some other people because of my Western medicine background. I think even though I was feeling all this trauma, I still wanted to trust it so bad that I went through a lot of things I probably should not have agreed to. Um, But when I first got sick in Portland, I ended up going to see a a GI specialist and a gynecologist because of the possible pelvic inflammatory disease. And so those two doctors, I'd been back and forth for a while. And then the um, gynecologist had decided maybe I had endometriosis. So I actually went through a laparoscopic surgery in Portland at the very beginning of this to see if anything was going on. Um, unfortunately they had, so they had found a possible adhesion, nothing really that could, um, point to anything that was going on. So I went through all of that. And then when I went to Reno, I ended up seeing another, a GI specialist, another gynecologist, um, and another surgeon that the other surgeon had actually, um, sent me to. And so I had been going back and forth through all three of them for a really long time with, um, them also sending me to. Other doctors in their own practice because they weren't sure what was going on, so it was kind of I was just bouncing around from doctor to doctor in each practice because no one really knew and they wanted to send me to someone else who might have an answer. But I got um, another laparoscopic surgery in Nevada because they felt like the surgeon hadn't looked close enough in Portland, there had to be something because. They felt like my stomach. There was no way my stomach could be as big and descended and as hard as it was without having some sort of blockage. So I went through another surgery. I went through multiple MRIs. Um, I went through. um, It's called an MRCP, where they thought because I previously had my gallbladder out in high school, they thought maybe there was something um, still there from my gallbladder, and maybe the uh, sphincter that um, is near the gallbladder was not working correctly. So I went through. Um, a whole series of that. And then um, I went through multiple CTs and endoscopy, colonoscopy, I mean, any sort of GI test, you name it, I had it, any sort of gynecological test, you name it, I had it, my liver enzymes were skyrocketed, and they weren't sure why. So I went through a whole bunch of series of tests for that. I, 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 I exhausted all sorts of Western medicine testing, basically.
2: So now one of the things that we all see with Western medicine is that we are led to believe that if we hand our health over to our doctor, our doctor will be able to diagnose what's wrong with us, give us a treatment, and we will get better, right? That's how they hold themselves out. Um, You were somebody who was being trained to hold yourself out that way, so you fully expected, right, that you'd be able to find a doctor who would be able to diagnose you and you know, and and not have to do all kinds of experimental procedures and not have uh, all kinds of tubes put in various parts of your body. And um, yet nobody gives you a diagnosis, right?
1: Yeah, correct. Exactly.
2: So how long did you go with these symptoms developing before you finally got a diagnosis?
1: Um, About two and a half years.
2: And what was happening in your life during those two and a half years? Meaning, were there other people in your life who were questioning whether or not you were sick? First of all, I mean, did, did family members or friends think that perhaps maybe you were a little dramatic and you really weren't sick? Uh, maybe you were uh, you know, assuming the symptoms that you were studying. I mean, how are things going with your your social circle?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's never a good time to be sick, but I truly feel like this was a pivotal moment in my life where so many different things were happening where, I'm graduating college. I'm trying to start the career that I had always dreamed of and trying to do all these things. And I was just so unwell. So at the time I was trying to get into the pediatric intensive care unit, which is a really intense job. And, you know, it takes so much focus and time and energy and um, heart towards the whole thing. And so I was in the middle of that. And I have an extremely supportive family and I really appreciate everything that they have ever done for me, but I think I am a pretty independent person. And also for me, when I don't have answers and I admit that I'm going through something, it almost makes it worse. And so I was kind of in this weird part where I have all of these people trying so hard to support me and love me, but I just needed to do it and get through it myself and figure out what was going on and figure it out so I could get into the career that I dreamed up and start my life that I dreamed of.
2: So how were your symptoms interfering with your ability to pursue this dream career?
1: It was really bad. I was so exhausted. I just, I remember I, as a nurse starting off, you have to work night shift, which already is a huge trigger on all parts of your body, you know? And so I was really sick, but I had gotten this job and who turns down their dream job, you know? So I started the dream job and I remember I was so sick. I couldn't make it 10 minutes of a drive home anytime or there. I would have to stop every five minutes and I would take a nap and then I would make it to work. And then when I would come home, I would do the same thing. And then to get out of bed, I couldn't, Get out of bed. I literally had to roll myself off the bed and like fall to the ground to wake myself up and be like, okay, you can do this. After you get through this shift, you'll be able to rest again. And then you can do this again and we'll figure this out.
2: So, what's going on in your social life? Did you have a social life at all? Were you so sick that the only thing you could do is get to work, get home, and get to work the
1: next day? I did. To my own downfall, I unfortunately, I'm an extreme go getter, and I am not good at saying no to anything. So um, I, my friends are a huge part of my life. And so for me, you know, my life really revolves around my social life, kind of along with my career. But at the time, I was really trying to juggle it all still. And I would still go try to hang out with my friends. But My friends recently, my, one of my best friends recently, she was talking to me and she was like, Emily, I remember back when we were hanging out when you were really sick. And she's like, you would come to everything because you were so nervous about missing out on it. Like your fumble was so extreme, but you, I would see you in the corner, just sleeping on the couch. Like you would get there and you would try to be there so badly. Like you wanted to be there so badly and you were so dead, you were just being asleep over in the corner, but you felt like at least you were doing what you could. And that's really how it was. All right.
2: So you're really sick. You're starting a new job. There's a lot of stress there uh, because you're the queen of FOMO. You were still going out, even though you were really sick. You're sleeping in the corner uh, rather than missing out, right? Uh, and you're just getting sicker and you're getting sicker and you're getting sicker. So um, what do you do? I mean, how do you finally get to a place where you get diagnosed?
1: Yeah, it w- I mean, it was just so much. Um, it got to a point where I was throwing up so much that the doctors were like, I don't actually know what's going on, but we might have to put a feeding tube and, you know, you know, like it's so bad. And my, um, friend, a lady I had nannied for in college, she had Lyme disease in the past. And she had reached out to me previously about it and said, Hey, I think you should look into this. Um, But I, you know, I had all my faith in Western medicine. I had all my faith that they would figure out what it was. And i had mentioned Lyme disease once or twice. And, you know, there wasn't really anything that went with that with them. So um, at this point, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, you know what, I don't care how far off anything seems at this point, I need to. Do something and so i had reached out to a naturopathic doctor in reno wait
2: a minute wait a minute this western trained nurse is now reaching out to a naturopathic doctor
1: yes and wow. i yes i i hear the questioning behind it because so i had actually um been transferred to Stanford hospital and right before this. And when I was transferred there, my liver enzymes were off the roof. There was just so much going on. And when I went there, the doctor had said, gosh, I have no idea what's going on, but we're going to keep seeing you. We're going to keep doing this, you know, all these things. And I had asked him to test me for Lyme disease, and so he did, and it came back negative.
2: Okay, let's and pause so there. I, let, let, let's pause yeah. there for a second, because you did you did reference this Lyme issue, right? So, when was the first time you thought of Lyme, and who's the first doctor you brought that up to?
1: Yeah. Um, so it was my my friend who I nannied for had brought it up to me multiple times during my journey, and i had kind of thrown it off. You know, I said, "Oh, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem like I so do all this stuff."
2: So that's where it came from, right? None of the doctors yeah. that you were treating with ever even mentioned it to you. It was, yeah. it was somebody in the sister science world, right? We, we, uh, Matt and yeah. I talked about it all the time. Like, uh, when I was a young man working out in the gym, you'd have somebody come up to you as a bro, you should be doing X, right? And we used to call it the bro science, right? Well, we, we, are seeing a lot of that here in, in, in the Lyme world where people who have Lyme disease or family members of people who have Lyme disease are, generally better at diagnosis diagnosing Lyme disease than the Western doctors that you're treating with. And that's what you had here, right? You had someone, someone come up to you at Sister Science and say, I think you have Lyme.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And she's the one who all along had said it. And so when I was transferred to Stanford, I still was thinking, you know, oh my gosh, these specialists of Stanford Hospital who know everything should at least be able to say, hey, maybe this is a thing or not, you know? So I had them test me and they did, I don't even know what the test was at the time, but it was some blood test that was not the ones that are, um, that we know better now. And so it came back negative. And so I was like, oh no, you know, I'm bummer. That's not what it is, but it's not lying. But then I had that moment where I looked in the mirror and I was like, you know what? She had told me, she said, there's multiple tests. Why don't you go see a naturopath? And I was like, yeah. I think I just have to do whatever it is and just see how it goes.
2: Okay. So you're, you're failed by at least 15 clinicians who failed to diagnose you with anything that you were suffering from. And now you're failed by a Western test that you had taken as a result of someone seeing you symptomatically who could see that you were suffering from Lyme disease, but you came back negative for Lyme disease with the Western test. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So in desperation, The gal who is invested in, uh, Western medicine, uh, now pivots over to, um, a non-traditional doctor and what happens?
1: Yeah, I was scared, honestly, to be honest, which I am embarrassed about now that I've gone through everything, but I was nervous. I, I didn't know anything about naturopath or, um, naturopathic medicine or anything. So I went to this doctor and they um, were so nice and they went through my whole history. They went through everything. My appointment was over an hour long, which was incredible to me because, you know, in Western medicine, you have a 30 minute appointment where you're trying to rush out every one of your symptoms, talk about what you're going to do, everything. And so this appointment was incredible. And I sat there thinking, after all of this, if they can't figure this out, I don't think anyone can. And so they did all the tests, it was extremely expensive. I mean, I spent a fortune on it. And um, they ended up doing the igenex test, along with um, the co infections test as well. And I came back positive for Lyme and positive for the other co infections as well. Uh, however, at this point, I mean, you've set the background up pretty nicely. I, you know, all I know is Western medicine, I'm still really skeptical of this. I'm like, My Stanford doctor just told me I'm negative and I'm coming to this naturopathic doctor. I don't know anything about, and all of a sudden I'm positive for all these things. And so I was really nervous about it. And I reached out to my friend and she had explained the whole reasoning behind why the one test could be negative and the other one's positive and all the things. And they, um, had talked about starting a treatment course and everything, but I was really hesitant. And I went to bed that night after I got my results and I long, I know I talked about that rash earlier in this, but I forgot about that rash after, you know, three odd years. And so I went home that night and I went to bed and was just so distraught. And I woke up in the middle of the night and it was probably the craziest thing I've ever experienced in my life. I woke up with this memory of this rash I had in Europe. And I was like, that is so weird because everyone talks about this bullseye rash of a Lyme disease. And I immediately went to my phone because I had sent a picture to my mom because I was in a panic. I was like, mom, I had this rash for five weeks. What the heck? How did I get rid of this? So I looked up the picture of what I had sent her and it was a perfect bullseye rash. And in that moment, I was, I just started crying and I was like, this is it. I can believe this. And Now I have full faith in everything this doctor is telling me.
0: Emily, what I find so beautiful about this story is you talking to Rich, describing the process of you starting to be able to trust your own gut or stick to your gut, right? And that's a theme that you've now carried forward and we're going to get to in a little bit, but we're seeing it already. This is the beginning of you sticking to your gut and getting to health where you are today. And it's just really exciting to to see that, that transformation. I know I'm getting way ahead here. But I also just want to take a moment to stop because, of course, everybody knows we do some research on our guests before we interview people. And I'm looking at your social media now on Instagram. And of course, your handle is stick to your gut. Right. And you have some really cool content on here. So you talked about some of the GI issues that you've had. And I just want to encourage everybody listening to this to check you out on social media i stick to your gut because I'm already inspired on so many meals that are gonna be lime friendly meals to make for myself. Like my favorite one is this crispy sesame cauliflower. I'm like, oh my goodness, right? Your <laughs> gluten-free peanut butter muffin. I mean, I'm just scrolling and I'm like, wow. So total side note, but so you finally get your diagnosis, you're questioning it, you remember the rash and you realized I really have Lyme disease, right? So I have to ask, do you think that you remembering this rash was just something in your subconscious that came to light. You think there was some sort of spiritual element to this, you know, with your faith. You know, it just seems very coincidental that you get diagnosed that night, you wake up from sleep, and you remember a rash from three years ago. You look at it; it's a bullseye rash, right? I mean, what do what are your thoughts on that? That that coincidence, quote unquote.
1: I really think about it almost every day. I don't know. I grew up um, pretty religious. I grew up in Catholic schools. I believe in a higher being. I've gone through multiple different things, you know, of being really religious, kind of stepping back a little bit. There's been so much in the world lately where I feel like you question everything at d- different times. And so for me that night, I don't know what it was. I, I do believe there was something special about it and there was some crazy part of it. It is so coincidental and so beyond a normal thing you know and it was exactly what i needed which is the craziest thing for some people they would have been able to get through it and believe what they were told right then and there when they got those results but this was so intentionally towards what i needed that it i think about it every day i don't know what it was but it was what i needed at the time
0: similarly i want to go into where we are with rich right now but i have to backtrack because a lot of things that you talked about with rich that i want to explore a little bit deeper Because one of the things that we hear often on this podcast, and it's really rich, and I can't relate, so I'm going to ask you some probably weird questions that hopefully you can clarify for me. Because so many people in the online community end up with an endometriosis diagnosis, and they have problems with, you know, female issues. So you mentioned that you were constantly going to the gynecologist, you were misdiagnosed with, with endometriosis, you were having some laparoscopic surgeries because you had your gallbladder removed to see if, you know, if there was problems there. What are your thoughts on the overlap between endometriosis, gynecological problems, and Lyme disease? Because it seems so prevalent, you know, so common where people are debilitated with endometriosis and have debilitating periods where they're literally out of commission in pain in bed, not being able to function because of the periods. Now, is that something you can relate to? And if so, give us some insight into that from your perspective.
1: I think that Lyme is able to attack so many things. I think for women, um, our hormones are a huge part of how our body reacts to things. And when you're under that much stress, I think one of the things that happens is your hormones get out of balance. There's so much inflammation and that's really a big part of endometriosis. And so, um, I, I don't know, I can't say like from a doctor's standpoint, the actual science of it all, But I do think there's a huge overlap with that. And I mean, we just see it with women all the time, you know, women who have different dietary needs who haven't figured that out yet. And there's chronic inflammation or people with arthritis. People have a hard time with their periods. They have a hard time in general with cramps and bloating and all of the things. And I think it all relates just to how your body reacts to things. And I think wine is so opportunistic that it really hits that for a different woman. Emily, again, not to get
0: too personal, did you experience painful periods? Were you experiencing endometriosis? Were you having problems like that when you were really sick?
1: Yeah, I, um, I weighed probably 100 pounds and I'm 5'2 and I was having such bad periods that I, they couldn't stop the bleeding at all. And I was in bed cr- almost crying because it hurt so bad. And they were trying to put in an IUD because they had to stop the periods. They were double dosing me on birth controls, which, I mean, gosh, that's so much hormones for a small person. And, you know, looking back again, I just did what I thought was right because the doctors were telling me that's what I was supposed to do. But yes, I experienced all of that. And it is truly traumatic to go through that as a woman. It's not a good thing.
0: So Emily, as, and I don't want to go too far ahead, but I think it's important to speak about here as you start to heal. And, you know, today, are you experiencing nearly as difficult symptoms from, you know, or pain from periods and endometriosis symptoms, et cetera, now that you've been able to heal and modify your diet accordingly in a way that is best fit for your body?
1: No, I actually don't have any issues with my periods or any of the gynecological issues at all, which is pretty incredible. And I'm pretty blessed to be able to say. Um, I do still struggle with GI stuff every once in a while, but I have it under control where it's just minor issues here and there. And for the most part, I feel so beyond lucky that I have been able to get where I am.
0: And I think it's really important because so many people, one of our good friends, Claire Dalton, who's been on this podcast, she just recently co-hosted with us and she was sort of dealing with these extreme endometrial symptoms. She was debilitated for, you know, a week every month because of her period And she just had a breakthrough in the last few months. And she's been sharing what's been working for her. But I think people listening need to know that that's not something that you have to live with forever. Once you get chronic Lyme disease, you can overcome that. And I think, Emily, you are a perfect example. And Claire is a perfect example of that. Keep on fighting. Don't give up. And you can have a breakthrough and get a normal life back, right? So I think that's really powerful to talk about. The other thing I wanted to question you on that you talked about with Rich was you mentioned you had your gallbladder removed. And there were some questions as to maybe there could be complications there. And they did some exploratory surgeries to see if there was anything going on. From what I understand, and you can probably, you definitely can clarify more than I can. I believe the gallbladder really is like the storage pouch for bile, right? And bile, we know is so important for detoxing. It allows you, it helps your liver in detoxing, so as these things come into your liver, and you're detoxing heavy metals, mycotoxins from mold, everyday toxic toxins, microplastics, etc. All of these things need your liver to be working properly with adequate bile to flush it through your liver and into your GI system and out of your body. Do you think that there's any connection between your gallbladder removal surgery and possibly not being able to detox and maybe being connected to why you got so sick? Or do you think that I'm looking too much into this from a medical standpoint? Because obviously you were you a nurse and you know far more than I do about this topic.
1: Absolutely. I actually really do. I don't know medically for sure if a doctor would agree or not. However, I think it was right when I had started my treatment, I was killing off all those bacteria and that's when my liver enzymes had skyrocketed. And I really do believe that I was not detoxing. I've never been a self-care detox person before any of this. And so I truly wasn't doing any of that stuff that everyone was saying you should do while you're getting treated. And I do feel like it had a huge play in the role, but um, I can't say for certain scientifically if it did.
0: And before you were really sticking with your gut, you mentioned that all these doctors are basically telling you, hey, you have an STD, you have an infection, you need antibiotics, hardcore antibiotics, go home. And one of the things you said that made me really sad was that doctors simply just didn't believe you. And that resulted in medical trauma. And Richard, you touched on this, but I want to explore this deeper because I feel like medical trauma can prevent you from taking steps forward. I think about my own journey. And I remember when I was treated very poorly by a neurologist, when I was having severe neurological symptoms, it made me anxious and afraid from that trauma to take steps forward to seek other doctors to help me because I was afraid they'd treat me the same way. So give us a little more about this medical trauma you experienced from all these doctors and you know, how it impacted ultimately your diagnosis and maybe tips and tricks you can recommend to people that are dealing with that now to overcome that trauma to expedite a diagnosis of any illness.
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest part of all of this for any person who's going through not only Lyme disease but any illness that is unknown at that point in their life. Um, you know your body, and so I I truly felt like doctors knew my body better than me at this point in my life, and so I was getting. Gaslight. And, you know, I don't actually think that it was anything intentional of doctors. I think sometimes when you don't know the answer, which I can relate to a little bit as a nurse, sometimes when you don't know the answer, you feel like you have to say something or you have to defer to something. And so maybe that's where some of these doctors were coming from, where they felt like they had to give some sort of answer at the point, um, at that time. But you know, that was the first time that I had truly felt like I was not, um, getting, that they weren't listening to me or they, I was getting gaslit by the doctors and stuff when that was happening. But throughout my journey, it had been over and over again, where, you know, it was times where I wasn't eating and doctors would say, well, it sounds like maybe you just aren't trying the right things. And I would be like, every little thing I put in my body, I throw up immediately. If you could tell me what to put in my body and I will do it right now. You know, like whatever it is, you tell me and I will do it. But it was things like that. And then um, it was cases when I was in the ER, because I wasn't able to eat my stomach was so big, and it hurt so bad that they were saying that they thought I was a drug seeker, which I even in my uh, emergency room visits, I refused narcotics, because those make GI symptoms worse. And so as a nurse, I knew that and it wasn't a, a pain thing that bugged me. I mean, I can withstand a certain amount of pain, you know, and I feel like I have a pretty high tolerance, but it was just that I wanted to know it was wrong. Like I didn't want them to give me pain medicine, I just wanted them to figure out what was wrong. And even in those instances, they would turn me away, saying, Oh, I think you're a young pain seeker, and all the things. And it was times where the, I mean, kind of going ahead of myself, but I ended up getting a Lyme and I couldn't walk to my kitchen without like literally so short of breath. I was hyperventilating and my heart was just racing and I would have to sit down and they would say, no, I think you're just having these crazy anxiety attacks. And, you know, it was stuff where I truly feel for people now that I'm on the other side of it. It makes me really sad. That I am a part of the medical field that is maybe potentially causing this for people. But yeah, I think hearing other people's stories too, so many people are being told that they're wrong and that this isn't what their body is feeling. And after I had learned that I'm not wrong and that I do have this illness and all these things that I was feeling were real, I really learned you just have to believe in yourself and you have to stick to your gut. And when you know something's not right, it's not right. And don't let other people who don't know what's going on say otherwise.
0: And what I like most about what you're sharing with us, Emily, is that, yes, there are times when the medical community will fail us and we have to, we have to stick to our guts, right? But you are offering a service now, which we're going to get to, that sort of makes up for that lack of ability for the medical community to help us. So you are a nurse, you are a Western medical practitioner who then had to evolve, which we're going to get to this, to really embrace Eastern medicine to heal, and now you're helping other people fill the shortcomings of the medical community to get to where you are today, right? So that's really going to come full circle in a bit, but that's the really cool part about your story that I really can't wait to get to and share with, with when Rich jumps back in. But again, before you even treat, before we get into your treatment and the diagnosis, Rich brought us to, let's talk about, let's talk about your misdiagnoses and your symptoms. Because you touched on some of your symptoms, but I want to make sure we hit all of your symptoms and your misdiagnoses. I mean, you had this PID, STD misdiagnose. You had the sphincter of OD dysfunction, MRCP, right? I'm just going through the list here that you've given us for this podcast. You had bowel obstructions with two exploratory laparoscopies. You had Lyme carditis. You had IBS, depression, anxiety, chronic fatigue, GERD, Crohn's disease, Hashimoto's, H. pylori. It goes on and on and on and on, right? So did you ever believe any of these misdiagnoses and accept that as the root cause? And in addition to that, give us an idea of the full breadth of your symptoms prior to getting your diagnosis. Cause obviously you were really sick and I want to make sure we have a true picture of how sick you were.
1: I believe everything. I mean, every time that they told me something, I believed it. And I was like, okay, perfect. This is it. Let's deal with it. This is it. And then they would say, okay, well, this is the treatment. And I would try the treatment. I went on so many different medications, which looking back, I just, I wish, you know, I had done things so differently, but yeah, I was full throttle. What they told me, I was ready for it. I was ready to try the treatment. I was ready to do it. And when nothing worked, that was when I was like, absolutely not one of these 20 different things that they have diagnosed diagnosed me with were correct and at that point i was just realizing they don't know you know no one knows and none of these things are all just a shot in the dark and we're just trying different things but i need to stop just going with it just because they're telling me
0: and emily just give us an idea of your symptoms so obviously you had severe gi distress you couldn't eat you were losing weight because you couldn't eat you had cardiac symptoms you had all kinds of other stuff going on. Did you have neurological symptoms? Were you in pain? Obviously you had fatigue and you said you were sleeping all the time, but give us an idea of the full breadth of your symptoms.
1: I had a huge, so it all started with my GI and GI was the first and major, It's been, definitely been probably the biggest part of my journey is my GI system. But with the GI system, then I started having really horrible joint pain. Fatigue like no other. I mean, it wasn't just that I was tired. It felt like someone was holding weights onto my eyelids. And I would literally hold my eyes open just by slits trying to talk to people sometimes. I could not keep them open. I would sleep for over 24 hours straight and wake up and would roll myself out of bed just to try to make it to the kitchen to drink some bone broth. I couldn't keep any food down my um the Lyme carditis part started and that was when it was really scary for me because I was so short of breath my heart was racing I couldn't do anything it was I I mean it was yeah you name it the symptoms really full throttle but it, it was um I mean it was different times when each thing was the worst and it was with different parts of the treatment process where some things became really prevalent and others less prevalent. But throughout the whole journey, I would say those were probably the worst of all the symptoms.
0: But it sounds like it really affected every body system you had. I mean, your GI symptoms were the worst for you as from, you know, from a symptomatic standpoint, but you had neurological symptoms, you had anxiety, you had depression, you had, so you did have some neurological symptoms, which I believe were a result of Lyme, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, for a long time, tried to fight that so hard. I definitely had the neurological, I would have brain fog and it makes you, it already makes you depressed when you already have that brain fog. You don't feel like yourself, but I have always been just, I grew up with three brothers and, you know, I I grew up where you figure things out, you do it, you get over it, you work through it. And so for me, even throughout this whole journey, when I'm that sick, I'm like, no, figure this out, get through it, get over it you can't be upset, you can't be depressed, you just have to work through it. And it was only after my Lyme treatment when I actually started getting better when my therapist had brought to light how bad I really was mentally at the time.
0: And of course, you had Lyme in your heart, your Lyme carditis, and it also with the Hashimoto's and the autoimmune component of this, you were having your immune system be attacked as well by the bacteria. So you're having these autoimmune complications. So it really was affecting your entire body. So I'm curious when you got your diagnosis from hygienics with this naturopath and I also have to say I don't believe it was a coincidence right I mean you're this western nurse you're really resistant to natural medicine if it weren't for this friend who you were nannying for in college pushing you aggressively then getting the test then having the memory of the rash and now all these things lining up properly for you to get a diagnosis here you are so you land in this position when you got the results. Was, did you test for anything besides Lyme disease? Cause I, I wonder if you had Bartonella, I'm sorry, Babesia as well, because a lot of that shortness of breath can be overlapped between Lyme carditis and possibly Babesia. So did you test for co-infections? And if so, did you have any positives on the co-infection spectrum when you did that with Hygienics?
1: Yeah, I had positive Bartonella and Babesia and Bartonella was the one that hit my stomach so hard. And Babesia, like you said, was the carditis and neurosymptoms more and um, the fatigue more.
0: All right, so now you finally believe you have Lyme disease. You go back to the naturopath. You accept the diagnosis. What is the first course of treatment you go on for Lyme?
1: This is where it was pretty hard for me because I had finally accepted it. I had finally gotten on board with the naturopathic medicine. And he had started me on a treatment of IV antibiotics. And he went full throttle on it which at the time I was ready for, I was like, let's kick it. Let's do it. I finally know what's on, what's going on. Let's get through it, you know? And so I started these IV antibiotics and oh my gosh, I honestly thought I was going to die. I was so sick. I was crying and I called my friend who I nannied for and she was like, you need to come see my doctor. I just don't know about this. And she had explained the Herx timer reaction and everything. And at this point, the doctor that was treating me at the time in Reno, he hadn't explained any of that. And I don't want to say anything bad against him at all. You know, I don't think he was meaning anything bad. And But the way that he had started the treatment was just absolutely not right for me. And so I went through a really dark period right after he started it where I almost regressed in my progress of going to get treated, which is really horrible because it took me so long to get to that point. And so I then went to the doctor my friend had recommended, and that was the turning point where she had immediately said, oh my gosh, absolutely not. No way at this point in time with how sick you are, you could tolerate what you were getting thrown at. And so I changed my treatment course from there with my new doctor in Portland.
0: Okay, Emily, so refresh my memory, the doctor you found initially who gave you the aggressive IV antibiotics, how did you find that doctor
1: again? He was a random naturopathic doctor in Reno who agreed to do the Igenix testing.
0: Okay. And do you recall what IV antibiotics that you were on? Was it Rosefin? Was it a combination of IV antibiotics?
1: Um, it, he started off with Rosefin and then after their i had hit so hard, he actually changed me to um, oh, I think it was maybe clindamycin, but I would have to think about it more. But um, he had changed me to another one where I continuously got worse, and then that's when I reached out to the other doctor.
0: And how long was this? How long were you on the antibiotics for before you before you made the decision to go to your friend's doctor, who she recommended? About a month. Okay. So now you're at a point where you're really sticking to your gut and you're going through this transformation. And you're like, all right, something's not right. I'm getting worse. I'm going to cut it short after a month and I'm moving to another doctor. And you do this, you go see this doctor and she tells you, Oh my goodness, this is not good. You're that sick. You need to, you need to start more gradually. So what is her approach in contrast and comparison to your doctor that you found who would do the hygienics test?
1: She was similar. She's still, I love the way she explains it where she says, we have this entire toolkit, we have Western medicine, we have Eastern medicine, we have all of these other things that we need to pull from evenly, you know, it's a give and take on both sides. And so she did a mutual approach where she still did antibiotics for me, which, to me, some people, I don't think that goes well for, for me, I think it did. Because mentally, I still have this almost innate background of this is the right choice, you know? And so she did some antibiotics for me along with different herbs and different detoxing and acupuncture and all of the other things that go along with it. But she did do a course of different antibiotics with me as well, but they were oral. And we met constantly to talk about the different reactions I was having in um, regards to her and stuff.
0: Okay, so a couple of follow-ups on that. On that, so what oral antibiotics were you on? It sounds like you were on a combination. Do you recall any of them? You know the specific types of antibiotics.
1: I was on a pretty um, intense combination. Unfortunately, I was allergic to doxycycline, so initially I couldn't go on the doxycycline. I had um, oh gosh, I'll have to think. They, I won't be able to give you the timeline of which ones were together at the time, but I went through minocycline, ciprofloxacin. Um, clindamycin. The big one that was really intense that actually I think was probably the most significant for me though, was one that treated Bartonella. And it was called um No. Um, I just heard I was just listening to one of the other podcasts with one of your other hosts, and she had gone on it too. I'll have to think about it, but it's a pretty intense one that does affect your liver sometimes. And, um, I was pretty nervous about taking it, but it was actually what really got me through the, not, not Dapson, sort of right? No, no, that was newer. Actually, when I first got it treated, they didn't really know much about that, helping it. And at the, towards the end of my treatment, my doctor almost put me on that, but no, um, okay. well, you know, what? If I'll, we think, can't, I'll think if about we, it.
0: If, if it doesn't come up, we'll drop it in the show notes. So don't, don't, don't feel too much pressure. Cause we could always just put it okay, in the show notes perfect. if we need to. So I, you know, I have to dig even deeper, right? So you're on all these oral antibiotics. One of them was was really helpful, and we're going to get that either later or drop it in the show notes. And you're constantly communicating with your doctor to respond to the Herc just to make sure you're not having too much of an extreme Herx reaction, which can be obviously detrimental to your health. You mentioned that you were on herbs and detox protocols as well, but give us an idea as to what specific herbs and detox tools you were using. And at this point, were you also introducing dietary changes because we know that's a really big part of your life now? So is that introduced to your life now, or does that come later on in the, in the story?
1: Yeah, I had, I, yes, the diet stuff was really big at this point in my time. My doctor had done the allergy testing through my blood and she had really honed in on the fact that my diet was extremely important, which at the time I looked at her and I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I can't even put anything in my body. How do you want me to change my diet? I'm literally not eating. So what do you want me to do? And she really honed in on it. And she got me on to a diet where I took out gluten, eggs, dairy, corn, and wheat. Or, or I said wheat. Um, And I started really trying to just get a simple diet where I, for the first week, I actually only did a powder supplement she gave me that introduced me to food again, basically. And then I went into eating some plain rice. <laughs> And then I went into eating some plain rice and plain chicken. And then I kind of started bringing things back. But then that's where I really started doing all the research on the nutrition aspect of everything. And that's where I got really into all of the, that part of it. Um, so not, but that
0: the, sounds very much in line with the Dr. Roll's diet. And I have to wonder, is this, is it the time when you decided to get your, I think you are your I certified health coach, right? So, and you went and got, got, um, certified. Did that happen later on? Or was this around this time that when you started to study you know, the, the role nutrition plays in healing and getting a certification?
1: That actually happened way later on. I, I went through all of this stuff and was so interested in it and learned so much about it. And I would talk to my friends and tell them everything and help them with their diets and all the things. And everyone always said, well, why don't you do this for other people? Why don't you go to a program? And do this. And I always just said, oh, I don't know, you know, I love it, but it's just something I just want to talk to people about. But then it was only actually in the last um, two years that I really started thinking about actually doing it for other people in the sense of actually like a health coach.
0: And that's the Integrative Institute for Nutrition is where you studied that later on, right?
1: Y- yes. Okay. yes.
0: So I, know I gave the acronym and probably was like, what is that? I And then I couldn't remember. That's why I had to uh,
1: Google it <laughs> while you were
0: talking and clarify So, okay. So now you're, you're taking some, literally you're going on a powder only diet, then you're doing rice and you're adding in chicken while you're treating with antibiotics and doing other herbs. So what herbs were you on initially when you first started the antibiotics? It sounds like you were doing these things together in parallel. So do you recall the specific herbs you were on? Were they tinctures? Was it homeopathic medicine? Was it stuff, you know, a certain brand that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, it
1: was tinctures. I was on a few other herbs. Um, in pill form, that I, I I couldn't actually tell you the names of at the time. There were so many that I lost track. But the major herb that really helped me was it's it's a tincture of CSA. It's um Cryptolectus cito, supposed Alcornia or something similar to that. Oh, I'll have to Google it so I don't butcher that so much. But. Um, that one has been honestly godsend for me. I, even when I was able to get off of my antibiotics, that's what I went into a relapse at one point and went back on the, just the herbs. And that's what really brought me back already. And so those were really important for me.
0: Emily, was it, is it woodland essence CSA? The cryptolepis yes. wood, cause that's, that's like the, you know, again, there's so many patterns here in this podcast and cryptolepis is a. The one of the, and even from the studies that are done at Johns Hopkins, the most potent and effective herb, and not only killing Lyme disease, but a wide variety of co infections like Bartonella and Babesia, which you had, right? And Woodland Essence is one of the brands we hear from people all the time that they use and have great success with. So I think this is another pattern that we're building here, where Cryptoleptis is something that helped you overcome Lyme. And then when you had a relapse, it helped you overcome your relapse. You know, so it's really, a, it's an alternative, I think, to antibiotics, but a more natural way where it doesn't do some of the damage that the antibiotics will do as well. So that's the Cryptolepis CSA formula. Now, yes. were there any other herbs that you can recall besides Cryptolepis that were helpful? I mean, the tinctures I know are hard because you don't really know what's in them and you're prescribed by your, your doctor, but do you recall any other herbs specifically that you were on?
1: No, I think that one was honestly the biggest one for me that was most vital. The other ones I feel like came in and out and I don't really remember their names, but that was the biggest one for me.
0: And from a detox standpoint, what were you doing differently now? So obviously you understood a Herxheimer reaction is because as you're killing not only Lyme, but a wide variety of other pathogens and microbes, your body's not properly removing them from your body. And you have to aid in detoxification, open up your drainage pathways. We hear this all the time. But what were you doing specifically to assist in detoxing to reduce the Herzheimer reactions you were getting?
1: I went to this uh, wellness spa where they had the infrared sauna, and that was huge for me. I think sweating out all the toxins was really big for me. I was taking a lot of teas. I actually was doing the cupping a lot, which at first, the first time I went in, I was really skeptical. And the first time I did it, I got so sick afterwards. And it all made sense. And I really was just blown away how accurate it was when people talked about it. And so the cupping really helped me the detox teas. Um, I was doing some vitamin IVs. Um, uh, with the glutathione and, um, different things. I think those were kind of the big things I did for detoxing.
0: So Emily, how long were you on the antibiotics, the herbs, the detox protocols before you started to see symptom relief and ultimately to the point where you were in remission and you felt that you had overcome this illness?
1: I took antibiotics and the herbs and the detoxing protocol for a year. I went off and felt really good for about two months and my doctor had warned me two months is kind of the period where sometimes you'll um, revert back. And I had gone on a run and came back and my body felt like I was going to die again. And I almost cried. I was just so devastated. I knew immediately it was back and I was so scared to go back on the antibiotics um, and so I, I actually did go back on the antibiotics, but this was during COVID. So I went back on the antibiotics and then I got hit with COVID. And at the same time that I got hit with COVID, I ended up getting this horribly opportunistic infection in your gut called c death. And, um, I, my doctor had explained it to me that my body was so, depleted with the COVID and I was so sick. I, I ended up having, getting breathing treatments. I was so sick from it. And they said that the C-diff had just taken over because it was so opportunistic. And at that point, there were no options for me to stay on antibiotics. And so I went on antibiotics. I'm going
0: to interrupt. I'm sorry. I just want to really point something out here. So you had a relapse. Lyme came back full force. You start to go on antibiotics. to address it. You get hit with COVID. So now you have a relapse of Lyme and co-infections and then you're hit with COVID. Now you have COVID and then you develop C. diff, a really bad, I think it's, a, it's really an antibiotic resistant infection. Is that what C. diff is?
1: Correct. Yeah. And that's so, the fear of taking so many antibiotics.
0: So you really have like, you're just, your body is now just destroyed. You have reactivation of Lyman co-infections, you have C. diff and you have COVID. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because you're here today, obviously, and you're doing better and you're you're in remission right and now you're helping other people so i just want to shed light on the fact that there is hope i mean you were just you were just really every single thing that could go wrong went wrong for you and you bounced back so i just wanted to point that out i'm sorry to interrupt but i just always like these stories of hope and inspiration that you're giving us today
1: yeah absolutely no yeah exactly and after that i wasn't able to go back on the antibiotics but i had been on them for um a period where i had gotten a little bit better and so I kept up with the herbs and I kept up with my detox protocol and I was really strict on my, all of my GI issues. I was really strict on my diet and my supplements and just healing from the rest of, um, areas of my life. And so I ended up being able to get through the C-diff and COVID and didn't have to go uh, back on antibiotics. And I have actually been in remission ever since. So I, I have been very lucky and there definitely is hope.
0: <laughs> how long did that take, Emily? From the time you, you were hit with this trio, this this perfect storm, how long did it take you to overcome that using herbs and detox tools?
1: Um, I would say it was about four to six months for to feel the full recovery. I think I was, I after being through it already a little bit, I think I was a little bit ahead of the game being able to know the things that I needed to do first, and the more important things and all of that. And so it was a little bit quicker of a recovery for me. But I think ultimately, it took about six months to really feel all the way better.
0: Because once again, you were sticking to your gut, and you were, you knew exactly what you had to do. And you did it right away, right? And that's here's that pattern now. So you went from not trusting yourself at all, to starting to realize I have to I have to trust myself to really stick into your, you know, stick into your gut and now being Wholly dependent on yourself and your body signals and making these decisions, which is why obviously you, you overcame this, I think, so quickly. So, talk to us about now. Was there anything else? I just don't want to miss anything. We talked about a lot. Was there anything else that we missed that you felt was an important piece of your healing journey that we didn't discuss from from a treatment standpoint or a modality or a detox tool, etc.?
1: Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. I think those were really the big things. I think my journey had a lot more. Um, antibiotic therapy and Western medicine therapy than some of all the other people who have recovered from Lyme did. But I think towards the end of it, all of those other treatment modalities that we hear in all of your guys's podcasts of people's stories, and everything else that is out there now, I was able to be a part of and learned the importance of them. But yeah, I think those were really the big spots of all of my treatment.
0: You know, with antibiotics, there's a time and place, and it's a personal decision. I mm-hmm. mean, I was on IV antibiotics, just like you were, Emily, right? When I was reinfected, I got diagno- I was diagnosed, and I caught it before I was even symptomatic, but I went back on doxycycline again for an acute diagnosis of Lyme and Rocky Mountain spotted fever with herbs, and that was a decision I made. So I don't want to put the message out there that, you know, we're antibiotics are completely bad in general, but I think it's a personal mm-hmm. decision everybody has to make, right? Do you want to go completely completely herbal, completely Western, or do you want to do a combination like you did? And we've had guests on that have had success using you know, one or the other or both, right? And I think it's such a personal decision. We're, so, we're also bioindividual. And I think that you're just giving us one path to success. And I think your path is a very good path to success. So if you had to look back at your journey, and I always like to think about this with our guests, what would you do differently to shortcut your journey to To health and remission, so people that are listening and are still treating and trying to get better, maybe you can give them some guidance and tips to help them shortcut their journey to health, like you did.
1: I think even though it's going to be a little repetitive, stick to your gut. That's the biggest thing for me. I mean, I knew from the very beginning that all these things were wrong, and I just didn't trust myself. I didn't trust my beliefs of what was going on in my body. I trusted other people's opinions more than my own, and I also I would say just be open to everything. Listen to people's stories because they went through it. And just because we don't have that much research out there for Lyme disease. So for a lot of people, they want to see the research and know what's going to happen if they do these things. But that's not the case with Lyme disease because we just don't have it. It's not accessible. And so sometimes you just have to know that you are thinking the right things, you know your body the best. And if other people have gone through this, then just be open to their ideas of ways that you can heal.
0: And looking back where you are now, your GI symptoms being the most life altering symptoms for you, so many people tell us that they can't eat. And you know, one friend comes to mind that I had that from Connecticut and she just is having a really hard time with eating. She's lost a ton of weight and she has severe GI issues you know, and there's many of these people that reach out to us on a regular basis. Was there any one thing or combination of things that you found to be the most helpful in alleviating your GI symptoms that you can share with our listeners to give them some guidance or, or maybe alternatives to what they're doing today to overcome some of these severe GI issues that they're dealing with?
1: Yeah, I think just going full force on it. It seems really daunting to change your diet up completely. And it feels I mean, for me, I think the hardest part was that I was nervous about the people around me where I would say, oh, I can't eat all these things. And I would think people would judge me, you know, and for really for everyone, it's so important that you find what your body is saying no to. So if you're getting sick from certain foods, eliminate them and work on healing your gut. And sometimes you can bring those foods back. Sometimes you feel so much better. It doesn't even matter at that point. And so I just I feel like diet is so hard because it just feels so daunting to start and change and live with forever. But it's so important. And when you figure out how much better you feel after you do it, you'll realize how important it is.
0: And I don't mean to keep pushing this issue. So you can you can definitely push back. But a lot of people tell us that they're, they're just so sensitive, they can't eat. And one of the things that you know, people always get accused of is anorexia in the Lyme community. And there's been some suggestions that you know, maybe the Lyme can affect your brain and actually cause anorexia. Other people believe that it's because people get so sick with GI issues, they can't eat. And then they get accused of being anorexic. But for those that are listening and a lot of people that tell us, look, I can't eat anything. So a dietary change is not going to help me. What will you be? And you were there, right? I mean, you had such, such, oh, yeah such, you know, your, your stomach was so extended, you couldn't eat anything and you got through that. So what was the most effective for you and you literally couldn't even eat and diet really was, a word that wasn't helpful because you weren't eating that allowed you to be able to tolerate foods and be able to get a normal diet back. Was it herbs? Was it, you know, what was it that got you through that time when you couldn't even eat anything?
1: Yeah, I was there. I was there so much. You know, when the first time someone said that to me, I was perplexed. I had no words. I just, you want me to change my diet and that's going to fix me. You know, it's so frustrating almost to hear. It's like, I can't eat anything. Why are you telling me this? But so I really resonate with that completely. But um, yeah, you know, what? It's, when it feels like you can't eat anything, Lyme disease causes so much inflammation and your gut is one of the most important parts of your body and it is affected so strongly by inflammation. And so when your gut's destroyed, it rejects everything. So I guess for me, the knowledge of knowing that it's not necessarily that I need to change my diet immediately. It's more of we need to heal your gut. And along with that, your diet needs to change. Otherwise, you won't tolerate any food, because it's not necessarily all the food that's causing the issues. It's your gut lining in general. And so for people who feel like they can't eat anything and get almost triggered by hearing, well, it's all diet like, don't feel that way, because it's not all diet. It's mostly you really have to look at the fact that your gut is sick. And so you have to fix that. And along with that work on your diet with it. But it's, I mean, it's a whole moving process. It's, it takes a long time. And it's, it's a lot of pieces that have to come together. But it's definitely not just a diet piece.
0: Give us a little more about the gut lining, because as a nurse, obviously you have, you have a really good understanding of this. So you mentioned inflammation is what causes you to have all these food sensitivities and affect affects your gut and it's your gut lining. So give us a little more. What does that mean? How does your gut lining and how does inflammation cause the inability to eat and tolerate food?
1: So your gut um, has a lining in it. And basically when you're super inflamed and you're throwing things at it that it doesn't like. It's getting really frustrated um, in simple terms. And when it is frustrated, it gets a little bit broken and things are able to leak out of it and cause this bloating, this pain, and it causes further breakdown of your lining. So if you don't have the strong, almost like you could say like soldiers, you know, lining your gut, you're just getting broken down constantly. And so you have to take out the triggers that are causing that. And once you take out the triggers, you have to heal that lining so that your soldiers can fight for you and that they can not let these things get through that are going to cause you more pain and bloating and inflammation and the chronic cycle.
0: So the key for you was starting with this really powder diet, introducing rice, introducing chicken, which is what your the only thing your gut can help while you were healing your gut. But what, do you believe helped heal your gut the most? Was it the herbs? You know, what were you doing? Was it, was it some detox protocols? You know, what was it that you felt helped heal your gut while you were on this extremely limited diet? And then as you continue to heal your gut, using whatever this was, you were able to eat more and more food. That's the piece that I think I'm missing is what you feel really helped heal your gut the most and repair your gut lining.
1: The supplements I was taking were really helpful probiotics uh, for any Lyme patient who has taken anti- anti- any antibiotics, It literally breaks down and removes all of your good flora as well as your bad flora in your gut. So your gut is starting from a ground zero of just no, um, like no support at all. And so you have to build up those good bacteria. You have to take the right, um, there's different supplements that can help build up the wall like, um, um, the L-glutamine and, um, aloe helps relax and just a lot of little things. But the biggest thing, the most important thing is to build that bacteria back up because your, your body needs the good bacteria as long as the bad, and that's the harmful part of antibiotics. And that's why doctors don't want you to be on them for that long. But again, for me, I had been on them for a year and a half. So obviously my flora was completely out of whack. And so taking the probiotics and the different supplements that help, um, heal the lining and then start doing the diet was the big thing for me.
0: So my final question before Bridge picks back up with you is, you know, since you're in remission and obviously you're, you're doing really well, are you doing anything today from a maintenance standpoint and do you have any plans to do anything differently moving forward with your health, with your supplement, with your lifestyle, et cetera.
1: I still take my um, CSA herbs every day. I am working on eventually getting off of them, but um, I'm slowly working on that. Um, I don't want to go too quick with that, but I am really focusing on keeping my gut intact and doing all the things dietary that I need to do. I'm much more aware of my body and much more aware of what it's telling me. I take breaks when I need to, I rest when I need to, I don't try to overdo it quite as much as I used to. Um, and I think I just, I think the biggest key is just I'm way more aware and listening to what my body's telling me moving forward.
2: Let's talk about that because we're going to now pivot over to the transformational element of your journey. Right. Um, and, We want to talk about the beautiful elements of your Lyme disease journey. So first, let's talk about what's been beautiful about it for you. Um, How have you changed uh, emotionally and spiritually as a result of going on this journey?
1: I have changed tremendously. I was growing up. I was a go-getter. I was running on nothing all the time, but I was healthy. And so it worked, you know, and I was young and I could do it. And I never focused on self care. I, I mean, I ate my family cooked, we ate homemade meals for dinner every night. But I wouldn't say that I knew anything about nutrition, or anything about gut health or um, just really had to focus on any of that. And so I think I went through a huge transformation period when I learned about how you really need to focus on your body, you need to know what you're putting in it, you need to know, what it's telling you, you need to know when it's time to rest and take care of yourself. And um, I personally feel like it was actually a really positive outlook um, for me that this all happened just because it really brought to light everything um, that I just didn't realize before about my body.
2: So, so you now are living a more intentional life, right? You're listening to your body tell you that you don't feel good when you're eating crap, so you stop eating crap, right? You're now eating better, right? So that's the first place you're intentional. One of the things that I was hearing during the earlier part of the podcast and when you were talking with Matt, is that you seem to be the kind of person that was coachable, right? And, you know, that might, another word for that, which or another set of words for that that may not be as polite is, you're a people pleaser, right? Uh, and, you know, when, when you talked about going out with your friends, even though you were really sick and sleeping in the corner on the couch, that sounded to me like you were a people pleaser, right? You want to make sure your friends still liked you and still wanted you to do things. Right? When you were doing things that doctors wanted you to do, even though you weren't getting better, one diagnosis, one treatment, you're still sick. Another diagnosis, another treatment, you're still sick. Another, like, so you were coachable or you were, you were being a good patient, Um but what you were doing is you were ignoring how you felt. You were ignoring your body signals. So talk to us about how you moved away from being this people pleaser, both as a patient and as a, as a friend, and how that was an important part of your journey.
1: Yeah, 100%. That was a huge part of my journey. I was definitely a people pleaser, and I still struggle with it. I still have to remind myself. But um, yeah, moving forward, you, I just really learned that I need to stop looking at what other people are thinking I should be doing or what other people think I'm feeling because no one knows what you're feeling. No one knows how bad it is. And especially for people who are somewhat people pleasers, you almost put to put it out there as if you are okay. You know, you try so hard to be okay, that you make yourself look okay, you make yourself so go do all the things. And so what are people going to think, you know, they don't understand how sick you really feel. So they don't understand why you're making these decisions on your health that you are. And so that was probably the biggest part of my journey is learning that I just need to listen to how I feel. I need to stick to my gut, do the things that are going to make me better. And don't worry so much about what other people are going to think and say for what I'm doing
2: and it really becomes toxic when we're putting on these masks where we look good right because what ultimately happens is when people find out that you're not feeling good when you're being more honest with people about how you're feeling you end up getting angry when people say how can you be sick you look so good right and that's one of the themes we consistently see in the live community where you know you're putting on this mask you're 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 repressing your feelings and then finally, you have this sort of a, this, 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 this explosion um, of anger because you've been trying to put on a face for other people, which, have, which is, again, toxic for your recovery.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think so many people feel that way. And for me, that was huge because I also feel like if I admitted how sick I was and if I did let people see what I really was feeling then it also almost admits it to myself how sick I am. And I didn't, I didn't want that. I didn't want to be sick. I didn't want to do any of this. I wanted to live my life and be a normal person and not have to be this person. And so as much as like, I want to say that it was also a people pleasing thing. I think it was also me just trying to fight it and trying to.
2: Well, well, were you fighting it or were you ignoring it? Right. Were you, were you not ignoring yourself that you were sick? Yeah. Not again, listening to your body signals, tell you that you were so sick and tell you what you needed to do. Right. Because what, what, what I'm seeing as the, you know, as the most powerful element of your transformation, as you're sharing your really powerful story with us is when you didn't listen to your body, you got sicker when you started to listen to your body, you were getting better. And every time you stop listening to your body, you'd have a relapse and get sick again. And then you come back and listen to your body and you start to get better, right? Because it goes all the way back to the point where um, where, again, and, and, and we use the term, you know, in, I, I think in the West, you know, of following our gut, but it's not really our gut, right? It's a different part of our brain, right? We stop negotiating with ourselves and we do what we feel like we should be doing to feel better, right? We don't let our cognitive um, functions control our decisions. We allow our more emotional elements of our brain drive us to what decisions we should be making, right? And you even got an image of something that you were forgotten about three years before, which ultimately allowed you to admit or acknowledge that you had Lyme disease. Right? You had objective proof. You had a clinical diagnosis. You had you had uh, you know the top um, Lyme disease testing company giving you results uh, that you were you were sick. But it wasn't until you allowed the emotional regions of your brain to give you the information that came to you about the rash. That allowed you to put it all together and you relied on your body and not on what your cognitive brain was telling you, which was, Hey, the Western test said I wasn't sick. Hey, all the other doctors said I didn't have Lyme disease. When you moved away from the cognitive portion of your brain and you moved more into the emotional element of your brain, you got to a point where you now had signals that you could read that would allow you to get better.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So
2: let's talk, about, let's talk about how you're now using that to help other people, right? Because you went through this unbelievably powerful transformation. You went on a personal development journey where you learned how to use the proper regions of your brain, which you're, again, using, uh, you're describing it as following your gut. And you're now trying to help other people put themselves in a position where they can now have precision medicine. They can have precision testing. They can have measure measurements that will allow them to get better. And it doesn't come from your doctor's clinical diagnosis. And it doesn't come from the diagnostic testing that Western medicine gives to you. Where does it come from?
1: Yeah, it comes it comes from you and knowing how you're feeling when you're doing these different things. Exactly. Yep, yep. And I just, I really... I want people to really feel comfortable moving forward in their lives, feeling that way, that they know their body the best and that they can really judge what is helping them and what's not helping them and being able to heal themselves.
2: So let's talk about the real power of your story, right? Because you're not, you didn't, you're not rejecting Western medicine. In fact, you use a lot of Western tools on your healing journey. You're not rejecting Western medicine. You're still a nurse and you're still helping people in that setting. Yet what you are doing is saying, hey, we have to be empowered to listen to ourselves and we have to be empowered to advocate for ourselves. And we have to become the bosses of our treatment where we're telling the doctors what we need and we're telling the doctors what what, what is working. But we're still working with these really smart, well-intentioned people who have great tools. and, And it's the combination of now taking control and becoming the boss of our own treatment that allows us to heal, right?
1: Yeah, I love the way you put that. Absolutely. I definitely I still work as a nurse and I love Western medicine still. I think there are incredible things that I've seen it do for people. But I think that Western medicine is almost more of when people are, you know, in the hospital, like doctors see people and they see they're not breathing and they want to intubate and give antibiotics and do all these things. And it's all this emergency medicine that we're all excited to heal and treat and do all these things. But I think we fail in the sense that people are also dying in the sense of a slow, chronically not able to tolerate day-to-day life. And that's where Western medicine is not the best part for because it's it's just not the best way to heal in that sense. And so I truly believe in both sides of it. And I think there's a time and place for both of them. And I think, again, like I love the way my doctor says that we have a whole toolkit here to help people heal. and. We need to use all of our tools,
2: right? So we shouldn't be running away from Western medicine. Western medicine has some awesome tools, right? But what we have to do is we have to make sure that we're measuring the effectiveness of the tools that are being offered to us based on the way our body is reacting to it and our body is signaling, right? So the real, I think the place where Western medicine is failing, and it is certainly failing, but the place where it's Mm -hmm. failing is not in the tools that are offered, not in the training of the professionals like you and and other medical professionals have Western training, because it's powerful training. Where it's failing is you're being trained as a Western practitioner to take control of somebody else's life. You're being trained as a Western practitioner to to um, to ride in on your white horse and tell us what you're going to do for us. And we are being conditioned by the Western um, industrial medical complex to hand our health over to you because that's the only way we can get better. And that's really where it's failing. And that's where you've now grown and created a niche and and, and filling a different niche with, with the work that you're doing as a health coach. So talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, so I... Um... I've recently started and um, doing a business where I really, I just want people who are going through this type of thing to know that they have support because like you said, doctors are coming in and they're telling you do this, 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 and this, and you'll feel better. And boom, that's it. You know, there's no support there. There's, it's not, what's the best for everyone. And so I am very specifically, specifically focused on the GI part of it from, because that was kind of what I went through the most and what I really learned the most with. But everyone's GI system is different and it's not something that doctors will really focus on. If you see a GI specialist, nine times out of 10, they'll give you an IBS diagnosis and that's that. They don't do anything with your diet. They don't do anything to explain how there are certain ways of healing your gut without taking, you know, a MiraLax dose every day to help you have a more regulated bowel system or there's just so much that, I, that needs to be done outside of a healthcare setting. And that's really what I'm trying to do for people. And I want them to know that they are supported and that they have someone here when they feel nervous about changing their diet up or changing, you know, any part of that system, what they're going to do. Um, someone's there for them. And there is support in that they can heal and they can live a happy, normal life that doesn't have to just always be based on how their stomach is doing that day.
0: So,
2: and another piece of this this gut health that, uh, of course, doctors are not helping us with, is they're not recognizing that when we when we do not have a healthy gut. We can't be emotionally healthy either because the vagus nerve is, of course, going to be triggered and we're going to be in a place where we're likely to be in fight or flight. And because we're in fight or flight because of the trigger, because of the triggers, now we're in a position where we can't help in our own care because we're now, we're now either. Fighting or fleeing or freezing or fainting or fawning our doctors and not giving them the kind of input that we need to give them in order to be able to help them to help us to decide what tools need to be used, right? So it doesn't only just have this physiological element, but also has an emotional element where we don't have a healthy gut.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're spot on with that because a huge part of our gut is our emotions and our emotions really affect our gut. And that's also the problem is that a lot of doctors are using that to our disadvantage where they say, well, you're depressed, your stomach isn't working well. Well, actually, it's the opposite. I am not feeling okay because my stomach isn't working well. And, you know, I feel like I look eight months pregnant every day. And how is that going to make you feel if that's not your normal self? And so I think you're spot on with that where I really hope to be there for someone so that they can see it in that sense where let's get your stomach better and you will emotionally get better as well.
2: So when our emotions are not working, what's happening is we're not getting our body signals, and we don't get our body signals. We're not getting the we're not getting the measurement of whether something is working, and it just gets worse and it gets worse, and we we sort of we spiral down, right?
1: Exactly, it's a huge spiral.
2: All right, now uh, let's let's talk about uh, the importance of coaching because I love coaches, right? And and I went from being a New Yorker who who asked the question when we first started hearing about health coaches, like what the hell health coach stuff you know i mean everybody in california is a health coach and we never heard of them here in new york right so i went from really having a you know a skeptical response to health coaching to now loving health coaches and thinking they're a vital part of a healing journey so talk to us about um health coaching and you are uh, obviously somebody that is focusing on one really important element of 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 coaching but talk to us about uh, what co- health coaches really should be doing, and what their role is in a healing journey for somebody that's suffering from chronic Lyme disease.
1: You know, I almost wish there was a different term for health coaches because health health coach is it's you know it's so much more than that. It's more of just a friendly support. That's all we need as these people. Everyone knows how they're feeling. It's again, it's an individual. You know your body, and so. As a health coach, I don't want to say that I know anything more than someone else. I've been through a lot with my gut. So I've learned so much with my own gut, but everyone's different. And so I think the most important thing is that there's someone there validating your feelings. They're validating the fact that you feel bad when you eat this one food, whether you're allergic to it or not, that's what it is, you know? And so let's pause it because
2: I I think you've hit the nail on the head, right? What a coach does is a coach validates our feelings. A coach encourages us to become our own coach, listening to our own signals and taking the steps to help us to get to the point where we can read our signals, that we can. Because look, I I think the argument that a lot of people make, um, which I'm gonna have to disagree with you on is, we all know our own body. No, yes, our body will give us signals, but we don't listen to them. In fact, we yeah. talk ourselves out of them. We get, we suffer medical trauma and we're we're discouraged from listening to them. We suffer trauma and go into fight or flight and can't even read any of our signals. So, yes, our body does have the ability to give us signals. Yes, our body does know best, but we don't know our our, our body best. We don't know how we feel. And that's the biggest problem that we have. And I think that's where coaches like you play the most vital role in a healing journey. Give me your thoughts about that.
1: I love that, actually. I love that you brought that up because I, you know, you tend to, I don't know, not think that way, but you're so right. I mean, that, that truly is, you hit it on the nail. We do, our body gives us all of these signals, but do we have the tools to listen to it? No. And so that's exactly what I want to be here for people. I want to give you the tools. I want to validate it. I want to support it. And I want you I want to help people be able to listen to themselves and to be able to figure out how to stick to their gut and know their gut feelings and know what's right for them. And support I absolutely them love
2: that. that. So I absolutely love that. So I can't ask you any more questions because that is absolutely <laughs> a highlight that we need to uh, we need to cut out and use uh, uses as, as an audio box. So let me ask you the last question we ask on take boot camp, course We can only go downhill when you when you hit it as perfectly as you, just, you did just Hit it there. So let's talk about um, what you would do, uh, both as a now nurse and a health coach. If someone that you love came into the room right after this podcast and they had a tick biting them, what would you recommend that they do so they wouldn't go from the acute cro- to chronic phase that you went through on your uh, Lyme disease journey?
1: I would tell them to uh, remove the tick in the right way. Save the tick. Save it for testing. I would recommend going on the doxycycline, of course, with a doctor's order, go to the doctor and see the right doctor. I would also have them look up a Lyme literate doctor and also do all the supportive measures outside of that, because none of the supportive measures are harmful in the sense of doing the detoxing and doing the healthy eating and doing all the things that support yourself um, outside of Lyme disease. You know, I think there's so much to support your body just in case and live a healthy life, but definitely focus on getting in and knowing exactly what it is right away and just being proactive about it.
2: Emily Hogan, thank you so much for sharing your beautiful journey with the
0: with the Tick Bootcamp community. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Emily Hogan. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Emily, please visit her on Instagram at stick to your gut. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Byte blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes for specific keywords, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.